we grow older, we tend to lose our imagination, especially as we get into adulthood. And part of the fallout of that, which is really unfortunate, is that we lose our imagination concerning heaven, that any kind of creative thought about heaven we tend to lose. And we, and we just don't think of heaven often enough, I don't think. And when we do think of it, we tend to have a pretty lame idea of what it's going to be. One lady I was talking to said that she thought heaven was going to be, you know, she was going to be in a nice little cottage in the forest, and Jesus was going to come and visit her once a day. And I just said that sounds like a pleasant life, but that's just not what heaven's going to be. It's, that would get boring after about a year, not, not less for eternity. But thank God heaven's not about us. Uh, because any, any, any of our desires are going to be finite desires in that sense. Heaven is about God. And so St. Thomas Aquinas describes one aspect of heaven, just one small part of heaven, as perfect intellectual fulfillment. And what that means is, if you can think of a time when you were really grappling with an idea or a concept of some sort, and then suddenly you understood it. You came to this moment of understanding of something very important. Or you learned something that totally changed your life. You know, you came to know something that, that changes your whole perspective on the world. And in heaven, that will happen continually, all the time, because we'll always be learning new and, and beautiful and amazing things about God, who is infinite, so for all of eternity we can continue to come ever deeper into relationship with him and know more about him. And so we'll always have that feeling of like, coming to know something new and amazing. And one of the reasons we kind of start to contemplate heaven today is because the ascension. When Christ ascends into heaven, he gives us both a, a totally new way of living here, but also a new idea of what heaven is and will be. The gospel today gives us a kind of profound image of that. Both, both readings, the first reading and the gospel give us uh, the scene of the ascension. And the one in the gospel can be misleading if we don't look at it carefully. So we'll read it. It says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he spoke to them, was taken up into heaven and took his seat at the right hand of God. If we're not careful, this image can kind of feed into one of our lame ideas about what heaven is, where Jesus sits next to the Father and the Holy Spirit. You know, it's hard to imagine that, but he's somewhere. And then, and then we're just sitting in bleachers kind of looking at him and just hopefully that's amazing enough. You know, that, that's kind of our, a really lame vision of heaven. That's not what heaven will be. What, the, what this passage means is something actually very amazing. And that's that Jesus ascended into heaven with his human nature. He took his body with him into heaven. It, he didn't just come down and take flesh and become a human being while in his earthly life. He takes his body with him, takes his human nature with him, into heaven. He didn't shed his humanity when he ascended. And why is this important? Why, does, why, do I, why do we need to point that out? I think for most of history, human beings have had some idea of who God is. You look at any ancient culture and you get some sort of God or gods or kind of spirit at least of some sort that created the world. We, it just makes sense to us. It seems utterly reasonable that we were put here by something, that we didn't just show up. But it tends 
to be a god created in the image of us as humans. So most cultures created their god in their image. You know, they, they just kind of projected themselves upon whatever their deity was. Which meant that those gods tended to be like us in all ways. You know, greedy and aggressive and angry and jealous and lustful and generally just unstable. If you read any ancient text, you know, you read Homer's Iliad or, or Virgil's Aeneid, and you're going to get these crazy gods that are totally unstable and, you know, some of them seem to maybe have, like, mental disorders of some sort. But they're gods, so humans can't do anything about it. You just have to accept it. What that created was a kind of anxiety concerning the things of God. You know, people just had feelings of anxiety when they thought about God. And so they, so they kept giving sacrifices in, in the hope of kind of satisfying the wrath of whoever their God was. And it led to a lot of terrible things. And just a really weird idea of, of the divine. Yet along came the Jewish people who, whose God was exactly not that. You know, God revealed himself to Israel as totally other, as n- definitely not a human being. You know, I am not you. Your ways are not my ways. And he was a God who created the world out of love, not to have some slave army or not to be served in any way. And he even says the sacrifices, the sacrifices in the Old Testament are not for him, they're for us. They're to satisfy our desire to worship God. He doesn't need them. And so this was totally new. This was really a revelation, a, a, a revolution as well, in who God is. Was there still anxiety amongst the Jewish people about God? Of course, because you can't think about the one who created all of this, the immensity of who that must be, and not be anxious. You know, it's just, he's just too big and too powerful and, and all-knowing and all those things. Uh, the psalmist says it best. He says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You know, it's kind of the tension there. You know, the Lord loves us. He chose us as his people, but he's still God. There's still a reverence there. But Jesus changes all that. He comes, and for a time, the kingdom of God is brought to earth. For a time, he is with us, and and God is with us. We can actually see God. And then he dies, and he rises again. And for this whole Easter season, what we've been doing in the scriptures is trying to figure out what's going to happen next. Jesus has risen from the dead. What now? What's our mission now? We see in the gospel the uh, the apostles still don't seem to get it. So they ask the Lord, Lord, are you, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They still think that he's going to bring an army forward and conquer Rome for them. And obviously that's not his plan. They're still grasping for what he's, what he's planning to do. This is not the Messiah we expected. So Jesus gives them a hard no, and then he reveals their mission to them. He says, go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. Then he's lifted up into a cloud and taken from their sight. So, we come back to the question that we asked earlier. Why does it matter that when Jesus ascends, he ascends with his body into heaven? It matters because now we have a God in heaven who is truly like us. Yes, he is above us. His ways are not his ways. But he's also a man. Jesus takes his human body with him. He has our nature. We can approach him with confidence. When we pray, we can actually 
know who we're praying to in a real and deep way. Yet he also isn't like us in the, in the bad ways of the ancient gods. He's not a petty and jealous and violent God. He's a God who loves us and he's a God who's perfect in every way. So he doesn't, fall, he doesn't have our shortfalls. He never sinned. So we're destined for heaven and destined to spend eternity with a God who can forever fulfill our deepest desires and is like us in every way. God became man. The church fathers say God became man that man might become God, which is just a, an unbelievable thing to think about. It's still mysterious. You know, and, and another beautiful thing about this is now that we've seen Jesus in his resurrected body, now that we've, we've heard what that is like, we can actually contemplate heaven in a new way as well. What insight does, this, does Jesus in his resurrected body give us? See, his body's real. You know, a couple weeks ago we see the, the, the Gospel of Thomas uh, when he's doubting, and then Jesus appears to him and says, Thomas, touch my wounds. Thomas touches his body, and we see that his resurrected body is a real body. He was eating fish on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So even after the resurrection, Jesus eats. Yet he also moves with no kind of regard for the law of physics. So he's just appearing one place and then disappearing and appearing another place and then walking through walls and, and basically doing whatever he wants. So what does this mean for heaven? Because we're all going to have resurrected bodies in heaven. We can speculate in kind of amazing ways, I think. Heaven is not, not going to be us sitting in the bleachers and looking at God. He wouldn't give us a body for that. There's no reason for that. Especially not a body that can do pretty much whatever you want. So we can only imagine the amazing things that we will be able to do in heaven. You know, our, we will be eating, which is kind of crazy to think about. You know, that all of Revelation is a heavenly banquet. So to imagine like perfect food in great abundance, you know, food that has every flavor at once, simultaneously. I don't know if that'd be good or not. Maybe it would. I think it would. Will our favorite activities still exist in heaven? I think so, because we'll have a new earth. So why would we not still do the, the great things that we do here? Now, why would there not just be a powder day every day on the mountain? Why, like, why would you not just catch fish on every cast? Would that get boring? I don't, I, think, I don't think it would. The trails would be perfect. What would basketball look like in heaven? Like all the greatest basketball players finally getting to play against each other in their prime. I think basketball in heaven will look a lot like what LeBron James is doing right now in the playoffs. So if you want to see heavenly basketball, watch LeBron James right now. He's, he's pretty much playing that. What will music be like in heaven? You know, like God willing, all the greatest musicians make it to heaven. They'll be writing music out of sheer joy, with no self-interest, with no time constraints. You know, it, beautiful music played by all the best musicians who have ever lived. So I think we can contemplate these things in amazing ways. Imagine the art, the conversations that we'll have, the people who we'll be able to talk to. But most of all, we'll have peace in the midst of all of this. I think in this life we get flashes of, of mo moments of peace where we actually feel like everything is taken care of. But then very quickly, the, the kind of cares of the world come back and, and take us. Uh, and the stress of day-to-day -day life just gets to us again. But in heaven, we will have true peace. I, I love contemplating heaven. I invite you this week to just spend some time actually doing 
what, what the apostles did for a little bit after Jesus ascended, which is just like, look up into the sky and ask the Lord what all of this means. Like, what's your plan for me, Lord? What, what is heaven going to look like? And give me a deep desire to be there, to actually go there. All of our, our prayer doesn't always need to be kind of utilitarian. We tend towards that, just petitions and needs and requests from God. We often just need to sit and contemplate who he is and, and what he has in store for us. And I think this is eminently useful because the more we contemplate heaven, the more we actually pray about heaven, the more we want to go. And then that, and then that spurs us on to mission in this life. So spend time with God and just ponder the beauty of heaven and let it spur you on to the mission to which we're called, which he told us, go out into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. Amen.